Today, scientists working on CERN's Large Hadron Collider announced that they have seen strong indications that the long sought after Higgs boson has indeed been found. I'm speaking to Dr. Alan Barr at Oxford University's Department of Physics. Dr. Barr, to start us off, what is the Large Hadron Collider and what has been yours and Oxford roles with it? Uh, well, the Large Hadron Collider, uh, surprisingly enough, it's a large collider of hadrons, uh, <laughs> which means it's a big machine. Uh, it's in a big circular tunnel underground. It's about 27 kilometres long. Uh, and it's, uh, it smashes together subatomic particles. In fact, the particular subatomic particles that it smashes together are protons. And protons are one example of a particular type of particle, a hadron, if you like. And that's why it's called the Large Hadron Collider. The Oxford group has been involved in two of the four experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, one of which has been searching for the Higgs boson and was reporting results today. That was the ATLAS experiment, uh, and that, together with a competitor experiment, friendly competitor experiment, the CMS experiment, both gave updates today, this morning, uh, live from Geneva. Our, our roles have been, I suppose, several on this. Uh, we've been involved in the design, the construction, and the operation of the ATLAS experiment over the last 20 years or so, in fact, well before I joined the, the group here in Oxford. And that work has meant that, well, even in the basement of the building from which I'm speaking to you now, we constructed a very high precision microstrip silicon detector, uh, which had a resolution finer than a human hair, and the purpose of which was to track the, fun the fundamental particles that were given off in, in the collisions at the LHC, at the Large Hadron Collider. So we were, if you like, doing the detectors that were responsible for reconstructing the debris from these uh, Large Hadron Collider collisions. Thank you, that's really helpful. We'll come back to the LHC later, but if you could give us a bit of background, what, what is a Higgs boson? Oh, a Higgs boson. Well, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a boson, which means that it's a particle with uh, integer spin. The spin is a measure of the particle's intrinsic angular momentum, how much it's spinning around, if you will. And particles come in two sorts. Uh, there are bosons and there are fermions. And uh, bosons are named after, uh, named after an Indian physicist, Bose. And though they are, have got spin of zero or one or two, or perhaps even more. Uh, so they are integer spins, and the, they, they form, if you like, half of the, the zoo of particles which we know about. And up until this point, the only fundamental bosons, the only fundamental particles of this sort that we've seen, are those which carry forces, things like the photon, which is the particle responsible for light. Now, the Higgs boson is something which seems to have no angular momentum at all. It's a what's called a spin zero or a scalar particle or a particle with no angular momentum. And we have never before observed any fundamental particle that didn't have any spin. So it's an entirely new class of particle, which is very exciting for a start. But what's more, this particular particle is absolutely required in what's called the standard model of particle physics. And this is the the theory which underlies all of our mathematical understanding of nature at the microscopic level. The role of the standard model Higgs boson is to give mass 
to all the other particles. So without it, the electron, for example, would be completely massless, would zip around at the speed of light, and would be totally in, in, in contradiction to what we observe experimentally. So we know that there must be something that gives mass to well, the electron and to all the other particles. And for decades, since, well, since the 1960s, we've been wondering what this was. Uh, I say we in the grandest sense because in, in those days I wasn't even born, never mind searching for Higgs bosons. But, but it's been a really very long-standing problem in physics how these other particles, uh, in particular particles called the W and the Z, um, how these particles have obtained their mass. And really, the best theory going in all of those several decades, nearly 50 years now, has been this standard model Higgs boson particle, named after Professor Higgs, uh, of, uh, now of University of Edinburgh. And we've been hunting and hunting and hunting for it ever since. Today, we found something that smells a lot like the Higgs boson. It's certainly a discovery, and it has, as far as we can tell from the very preliminary data that we have so far, it has most of the properties that we would expect. But, but that's very tentative, and it will take some time to get to the bottom of that. You said that um, the standard model so far looks like the best, the best theory that we have. Yeah. Why, why do you say that? Why do physicists say that? Um, why, why not another theory? Well, everything in science uh, is, is the best theory of the moment, and your theory can always get overruled at some point in the future. You know, Newton has a fantastic theory of mechanics that works very well for objects of uh, everyday size, moving at everyday speeds. But we know, uh, we've known for 100 years or more, that this theory breaks down when objects move close to the speed of light or when they are very small. And in those two regimes, uh, quantum mechanics and relativity have to take over. And so at the moment, what we have is a theory that explains all of the experimental data of the subatomic world very precisely. It is a beautiful mathematical theory. It's what's called a quantum field theory. So it's based on these uh, of the, the fundamental particles being point-like and having their different angular momenta, their different properties. And the Higgs was really one of the key parts of this. Now, as I say, this theory for, for the moment seems to describe all the data that we have at the subatomic level. And it has been beautifully confirmed today with, uh, with this uh, discovery of what looks... As, as I say, a lot like a Higgs boson. It's certainly a particle. It's certainly a boson. We can tell that as well. And it has most of the properties of the Higgs boson. But it, everything in that can be broken because we may, in the future, perhaps even in the near future, find corrections to that. We may find that this particle doesn't have precisely the right properties predicted in the standard model. And in that case, we would know that the standard model was a good approximation, but wasn't the final word. And that might not even surprise some physicists, because we know that the standard model doesn't describe everything perfectly. In particular, it doesn't describe gravity at all. And we're pretty darn sure there's gravity in the universe. So a theory of the universe which omits gravity is a little bit broken. Uh, there's, at the moment, not any good way of making the standard model work with gravity. And so the future of particle physics is not just in tying down the properties of this one particle, 
but in trying to get theories which stretch beyond it uh, and may produce uh, uh, a more unified theory of nature. And if, it, if this theory that the Higgs, the Higgs boson um, mm. completes the standard model and that, that, that's the theory that best describes the universe mm. as we know it at the moment, if that, that is true, then how, is, how does that make our understanding of the universe different um, from what it might have been if we'd have gone with another theory? So there, there was a sort of no-lose theorem at the LHC, at the Large Hadron Collider, which was that we knew that something had to be giving mass to the particles, the other particles in the standard, of, of the standard model. We know that those are massive. And we knew that the standard model itself would break down if there was no Higgs boson uh, at the energies accessible at this machine. And that was really one of the reasons that we were able to convince ourselves that it was worth spending some money on this thing. You know, if, if you know that you can access it, uh, access those properties uh, at a particular machine, then it's worth doing it. The thing which goes wrong without a, st a standard model or other Higgs boson is that scattering probabilities become larger than one, which means that the probability of something happening is more than certain. Now, that, that, that's very broken, and so we, we knew that something had to come in to fix that up. Okay, now that could have been a Higgs boson. It could have been something entirely different. At the moment, the, uh, we've got to be very much uh, in favour of it being this particle which the, we've observed this morning. And it's quite curious. It's in a very interesting place in terms of its mass, this particle. So the mass is about 125 giga electron volts. Now, an electron volt is the amount of energy that an electron gains when it passes through a one volt potential difference. So we're talking about 125 or perhaps 126, depending on quite how accurately we're able to do it, uh, billion of those electron volts. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, 100 or so times more massive than a proton. And it's about the size of a, of a sort of intermediate-sized nucleus in terms of its mass, although in terms of its actual physical size, it seems to be very small, point like uh, as far as we're aware. Now, the consequences of this we're yet to work out in detail. But it's interesting that it's right on the, this mass, this 125 giga electron volt mass, is right on the boundary where extensions, uh, new theories beyond the standard model, might expect it to lie. So it may be pointing towards new theories, new particles, which may be potentially not far around the corner. And that means that we will certainly not be stopping doing our work, having, uh, having discovered this one particle. We'll be looking very hard for others. So you, you said that um, these Higgs bosons, are, are, if they're produced, are going to be really, really small. Um, and let's say two protons collide in, in the Large Hadron Collider, mm. um, and they produce one of these Higgs bosons. Mm. Um, how do you know it's there? If it's so <laughs> small, if everything's moving so fast, how do you know it's there? And, and what's worse, it only lives for a tiny fraction of a second, so you, you can't capture it, you can't put one in your pocket and walk off home with them. Uh, no, no, no one will be selling uh, Higgs bosons on the high street in the near future. No, so... So as you say, that the protons collide together, they collide together at very high energy, and the high energy is important because Einstein tells us that E equals mc squared 
we can convert energy into mass and the rate of exchange is the speed of light squared. So what we do uh, and what nature does for us at the, at the LHC is it col we, we collide these protons together and it creates mass out of that energy. And the Higgs boson is one example of the type of new particles which are created inside those very high energy collisions. It's only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the collisions which lead to, uh, uh, to the production of a Higgs boson. It's a rare process. It's only uh, a tiny fraction of those that we would be able to observe. And here's how we observe them. Of the, the Higgs bosons, they're created. They almost instantaneously decay to other particles. And some of those decay products uh, are observable within detectors like the one we constructed in the basement here in Oxford. So one of the rare decay modes is a decay to, what's, to four uh, leptons, particles called leptons, for example, four electrons or four muons, two electrons and two muons, or particle and antiparticle in each case, in fact. And so one of the types of decay we were looking for were these events, these collision events in which the electron, which itself is stable, is produced. It passes out through, it's very, produced with very high energy because it contains all of the, these four electrons between them contain all of the energy of the Higgs boson. They zip through our detector and they, they create uh, little, little deposits of energy in our silicon as they pass through. And by joining the dots between those little signals that we see in each of those silicon detectors, we can reconstruct the trajectory of the electrons, we can measure their energy, we can add all the energies together, and we can look and see if there's a special energy at which there are more four electron events, for example, than there would be uh, expected from other processes which can occur. And this looks like a little peak in, a, in this distribution. And there were in the atlas uh, in the atlas plots so i tried to count them about about nine of these collision events in which there were four leptons being produced for little little of that order that means that we've been colliding 10 to the 11 particles 100 billion particles uh, throwing them together 40 million times a second for about the last three years or so and out of all of those collisions, we've managed to pick out those nine or so, you know, those handful of collisions, which have this really striking signature, which is uh, so characteristic of this particular type of particle. And to, to do that requires not just good operation of the detector, but very careful selection of those events, uh, analysis of them, calibration, and... The Oxford team, together with our other collaborators around the world, have been working not just to make sure that the detector operates smoothly, but to make sure that we can cleanly isolate those events and work out how many we would have expected to have seen had there not been a Higgs boson there, which is also crucially important. And so the number we'd have expected to have seen was about half of what we actually did observe, and it's because uh, we there was if there had been no Higgs boson, is because there was this excess that we were able to say, okay, for sure there's something here. And it required not just that type of event, but there were other classes of event as well, all of which pointed in the same direction. So it was a, uh, evidence building upon evidence, building upon evidence, all of which pointed in the same direction and which was presented together to get from the two collaborations uh, from Atlas and CMS. 
was there a point where you knew that um, today's results were going to be, be announced or, or was it a gradual process? Or? Well, I, I'm in a somewhat privileged position because as a member of the Atlas Collaboration, uh, I've been able to attend the meetings at which the analysis has been ongoing. Uh, and so from the Atlas perspective, which is half of the story, I was able to see that half of the story evolving before my eyes. Mm. And the last data was taken, the last data from, from the IHC were taken really just over a week and a bit ago. Um, and that means that the processing of that data was done at breakneck speed <laughs> in order to make sure that it, I mean, there was, there was a lot of the data were taken in the last part of the, the run, which we, which we just got through. And then people were working solidly through the night for days and days on end to make sure that all of that data could be analysed and put out in time for this conference, this uh, conference which is starting in Melbourne as we speak now, after this announcement. Now I could see the Atlas half of the story evolve and I could see uh, what looked like more and more evidence growing until the point where we were very close to the discovery. But I had no idea really about CMS, about the other experiment until today. The fact that both experiments saw an excess which could only be accounted for by an uh, background fluctuation one time in a million means that we've really reached the gold standard. And we have this five sigma, it's called, discovery independently from each of the two experiments. That doesn't happen by chance. Yeah. Would you have got that five sigma standard of accuracy, very high ac accuracy, uh, if you just have looked at the data from Atlas or did you need both experiments to do that? So, so would the other one have been okay? Yes, so uh, Atlas uh, had independently a five sigma discovery and CMS itself had a well 4.9 or 5 depending on quite how you how you interpret it sigma level of discovery as well so really both experiments independently reached the golden threshold which means that both independently could have discovered it and together the two is are very compelling and where were you when you found out the um, the results of that final um, batch of data analysis um, well, I was supposed to be helping out with uh, some business from my college, from Merton College, but I, I decided that maybe on this particular occasion I might like to join the rest of my, my physics colleagues rather than my, uh, my, my, my college colleagues. And so I was in, uh, in the physics building here in Oxford uh, and I joined uh, the, the about 80 or so people who work in this building, not just on the LHC but on all sorts of subatomic physics research. We did live streaming of the talks from CERN and there was great applause at the point where these, uh, these numbers, these numbers of 4.9 and 5 sigma came up on the screen. At that point, everyone was sure that something really historic had happened today. So you said that um, we have 5 sigma um, error on, on these results. How, how accurate is that in real terms? Well, that means that uh, the probability, as I say, of, of, a, of a... If you were to, do, to run uh, three million, in fact, it's about three million Atlas experiments, yeah. um, you would only see a false positive mm. one time out of those three million experiments it, with this level of significance. So it's really... It would be, it was, it's a very long shot to say that this is something which is not a new particle. And as I say, the same thing would happen, have to happen for CMS. You would have to run CMS for about three million or so times for each of those one time that you ran Atlas. 
So the, the two probabilities multiplied together, which is a very rough thing, you, it's, not, it's not precise, it doesn't really work, but, but it's, a, it's a tiny probability that this is not from some new particle. We really, really tiny probability. So, so we're, we're pretty assured that there is a new particle there, and that's why we, we require this high level of security uh, in our findings. The, the problem is that it's such a fundamental discovery that we're claiming and such an important discovery that we're claiming that you can't afford to get it wrong you know you you can't go on in front of the world's media say that you've discovered something and then two or three weeks later reckon oh oh oops i didn't quite look at this this part properly there has been an enormous amount of work an enormous amount of cross-checking and every every part of it has been made as solid as possible within that very short time frame you know, that, those 10 days to get the last part of data analysed. But we've been working on this, you know, non-stop over the last three years or so. So where next for research into the Higgs boson? And what, what are you looking forward to in particular? Well, I, I first of all like to know whether this boson, and it is a boson, we know that at least, is the Higgs boson or even a Higgs boson. You know, there are lots of theories which propose that there would be more than one. Some of the most popular theories propose five. And uh, so we've got to tie this one down first and work out, has it got the right properties? Does it have the, the spin, the angular momentum that we expect? It should have none. If it had some, then it's not the Higgs boson. Does it have the right interactions with the other particles? Does it couple to them in the right way to give them their mass? Is it subtly different from the properties that we would expect from the standard model? Many discoveries in physics start off with a subtle difference, which then becomes more and more robust as time goes on. We need to understand this particle first. But while we're doing that, we'll also be, be searching for all of the other physics that one can do with a machine like this. The Large Hadron Collider is not a one-trick pony. It, we, we built it knowing that it would be capable of solving this Higgs problem one way or the other, but we knew that we'd be able to do lots of other things as well. And really, it's not, it's not so much an experiment in the, in the usual scientific sense, but it's a facility. It's a facility that probes the high-energy frontier of our knowledge, and it pushes back that boundary. And what lies beyond that horizon, we're yet to discover. We've, we've, seen, we've seen something. We've seen, we've seen a discovery. We've found something on the horizon. But yet we haven't mapped out that land. We haven't found out if it's the, 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 the new world we were expecting or an entirely different new world. And that, that's a, a very interesting prospect for, uh, for myself and for others who will be working on it in the next few years. But even beyond that, there are questions which the LHC may have some insight into. And in particular, I, I'm particularly interested in, in the question of, of the dark matter. This is... Uh, seems to be required by astronomers uh, and, and, and cosmologists in order to explain the structure, uh, the evolution of the universe as a whole, the way that galaxies form. It's a, it's rather a mysterious kind of a, of, a, of a substance because it doesn't seem to interact with light at all. And the only thing that we know about it is that it draws gravitationally on things around it. Now, uh, embarrassingly enough for us uh, physicists, the the matter that we uh, that we know and love, the stuff that we've been studying in exquisite detail over the last ten hundred years or so, uh, last hundred years or so, it only forms about four percent of the energy content of the universe. Mm -hmm. 
the rest is made out of, as far as we can tell, dark matter and dark energy. And if these words feel uncomfortable to you, you, you should make them feel uncomfortable to you. You're right to feel uncomfortable about them. They, they are words that hide our ignorance about what these things are made out of. We, we have never made them in the lab. We've never been able to study them. And to be brutally frank, we don't know what they're made out of. But it's possible that in the same way that the energy of the Large Hadron Collider created the mass of Higgs bosons, and we know that the energy of the Large Hadron Collider can make other massive particles like top quarks and Z bosons and W bosons, it's possible that the energy squeezed together in the Large Hadron Collider could make dark matter particles. And those dark matter particles would be the first man-made dark matter, if you like. In fact, the, the LHC has the potential to be the world's first dark matter factory in which we produce this stuff and study it. Interestingly enough, some of these theories that favour the Higgs boson in this mass regime where it seems to be lying, 125 to 126 giga electron volts, theories such as what's called supersymmetry, would also predict that there are dark matter particles to be discovered and that those particles lie within the energy range that's accessible, perhaps in the LHC as it lies at the moment, or perhaps after the energy upgrade, which we're going to do over the next few years. So the Large Hadron Collider is currently colliding together protons at 8 tera electron volts, centre of mass energy. It is designed to go up to 14 tera electron volts, and after the, a period of maintenance, which is going to take about 18 months or so, it will be operating at that higher energy, and that higher energy is likely to be just the thing that we need in order to cover the most interesting area to get over the horizon of, the, of that new world, if you like, into the region where we think these dark, these mysterious dark beasties may be lying. So there's a lot of exciting times to be had uh, ahead, but it will take, it will take years, maybe, maybe, maybe even more than a decade, to get to the bottom of all of that. But to have sight of that new world today, that's, uh, that's been a, a great, uh, great sense of achievement for us. And uh, you know, we, feel, we feel very proud to have been a part of, of that historic occasion. And lastly, what next for the University of Oxford's physics department? Ah, well, well, as well as in being involved in uh, this very exciting analysis of the data that's coming out of our current Atlas detector, we, we know, in fact, that we're going to kill it. It's been designed. Uh, with the best technology that we had at the time, which means that it has a, a shelf life, the Atlas detector has a shelf life, at least the part of it that we, we built has a shelf life of about, about 10 years or so, uh, but that it will definitely die because of all these particles bashing into it within that period of time. So one of the things we've been doing is to push back the frontiers of technology and try to design, and at the moment we're in the middle of designing here in Oxford and elsewhere, a new detector, 10 times better. It can take 10 times more particles through it before it dies. It can measure them with higher precision and it can measure many more collisions, up to 10 times more collisions. So the, the future for Oxford is both analysing the data that we have at the moment, but also looking towards the future and building this new upgraded detector. And we hope that many undergraduates from University of Oxford and elsewhere will play a part in that analysis in years to come. Dr Alan Barr, University of Oxford, thank you. Thank you.